right. We're back in 1 John again this week. Moving right along. About halfway through chapter 3. By the time we're done, Lord willing. So today we're going to look at 1 John chapter 3. Start at verse 4 and then go through to verse 10. Give you a moment to... Open your Bibles and find that so that you can read along. So of all the things that we do today as we're gathered, hearing, reading, seeing what God has to say to us is the most important thing. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, on to 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we hear your word this morning, hundreds of different responses arise in our hearts and in our minds. Perhaps we are thinking, I don't want to be beat over the head once again about how I'm supposed to live righteously. I'm not looking forward to thinking about my sin. How could there be any hope or good news in a passage like this where I'm being told that I must be a certain way? Lord, for all the things that we laid down earlier in our last time praying to you, let us lay down our own preconceived ideas of what your word has to tell us this morning. Would you open our ears and our hearts to hear from you, to be given a great sense of confidence in what Christ has done on our behalf that would launch us and carry us through to righteous practice in life. And Lord, let us see the importance of this issue. Because while this does not directly address the issue of racism or of global pandemic or of other things that are immediately on our minds, Lord, we can recognize that the whole problem throughout all of history has been our distance from you. And today you are calling us to abide in you. Help us to hear and receive that, Lord, and to walk with you. Open our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit. Convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and that those things have been dealt with at the cross for your glory, for our great joy, and our great hope and confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, our passage is a continuation of the passage we looked at last week. 
regarding abiding children. Last week, the part one of this message was abiding children, growing, and waiting. Because the major difference of motivation in last week's passage compared to this week's passage was the second appearing of Christ that is yet to come, whereas today we're going to be looking at the first appearing of Christ and what he accomplished then. So whereas last week we thought about growing in righteousness as we await the return of our Savior, this week John moves backwards and says that we need to remember as we grow in righteousness. And that being abiding children, that is those who are the offspring of God, the new creation, sons and daughters of the Most High, we've been made that way in Christ. We're called to abide or make our home in Christ and to grow and to remember. So we're moving backwards, backwards to find motivation at the empowering work that we've seen in Christ's first appearing work of salvation. So if you haven't trusted in Christ for salvation, a lot of this, in fact, I would even say that most sermons, most messages that you might hear from right here aren't going to make a whole lot of sense. If we don't begin by remembering what Christ has done on our behalf, then texts like this may seem irrelevant in some way. When John calls us to practice righteousness, and when he warns us about the terrible nature of sinlessness, I'm sorry, of sinning, of making a practice of sinning, they may not seem immediately relevant of all the things that our minds are drawn to. All the things that our minds are being drawn to even right now. As children, we are meant to abide in Christ and to practice righteousness. We talk about righteousness as a believer in two ways theologically. The first one is positional righteousness, and the second one is practical righteousness. And you can tell probably already from that word that practical righteousness is what we're going to be focusing on today. As you see seven times in this passage, John has mentioned that idea of practicing righteousness or practicing sinfulness. But positional righteousness is regarding our status that we are redefined as instantly in the moment that we believe in Christ, the moment that he saves us from the penalty of our sins, that we put our faith fully in him to make us right with God. We become, the Bible says, positionally righteous because again, we are abiding in Christ. And so from the moment you believe to the moment you meet Jesus, you are his child. We saw that last week in chapter three, verse two. Look at that one if you have your Bibles open, I hope. Still, in verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. You need to notice one of the biggest differences between Christianity, and I would even be so bold as to say every other religion in the world, is that Christianity offers salvation on behalf of another person's work. And every other religious system is based on what you can do to earn your right standing before the Lord. Positional righteousness tells us that Christ became our substitute at the cross and has taken what we deserve so that we who deserve wrath might receive mercy and kindness and grace. Christ has received that for us to make us positionally righteous, but he is also intended to make us practically righteous as well. 
Now, you know, if you can remember the moment or even just the season of life that you were in when you first believed, that you didn't suddenly become a perfect person, right? You still made mistakes. You still perhaps even lived in some ways the same as you might have before, but you started to notice a change, a change in desire that slowly that Holy Spirit who entered your heart at the point of salvation began to make changes in you to start the work of making you look like Christ. Practically, we grow in righteousness over time through abiding in him. And though that sounds very spiritual and very supernatural, and it is, there's also a very practical end to that as well. Because we know that we become like the people that we spend the most of our time with, for better or worse, right? John Newton, um, who you'll know that name because he wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace. Anybody ever hear of Amazing Grace? Yeah. John Newton said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So he understood the idea that though we are not what we are meant to be yet, there is a change, there is a difference, and that is a difference of practical righteousness. The working out of our faith, the the fact that our life reflects the great good news of Christ that we believe Then there's a problem. The problem as believers that we embrace or that we should recognize today, rather, is that we can overemphasize uh, either position or practical righteousness. We might be led to say, I'm forgiven, so I don't need to worry about living rightly before God. Jesus already died for me. My sins are forgiven. What's the difference how I act today? We might also lean towards saying, if I don't live rightly, God will never accept me. Big terms for this are um, antinomianism, the idea of being against the law, saying that the law or the standards of God have no place in a Christian's life, and then legalism that separates God's law from his love and only recognizes rules and regulations apart from the loving nature of the God who made them. So I wonder where you might stand on that spectrum. Do you have a leaning Do you kind of lean towards thinking, ah, it doesn't really matter so much. I'm not going to focus too much on righteous living. Or perhaps do you think the only way that God's going to be happy with me today is that if I make sure that I don't cuss, that I don't get mad while I'm driving, that I don't kick the dog, that I don't do, right? And you go through the list of things that you say, these are what make me right. And neither one of them are correct. Neither one or the, rather, the balance that we need to have is to hold both our positional righteousness and our practical righteousness. And that's not easy to do. Abiding Christians, or abiding children, rather, are meant to be growing in right living, growing and living rightly. But we cannot do that on our own. We are motivated and empowered by the work of Christ to grow in that right living. It matters that we live in the tension of relying on what Christ has done to make us righteous positionally and that he is working that same righteousness in our lives practically. So think about a tension rod in your closet where you hang all your plaid shirts and your bow ties. The only way that rod will stay in place and be able to hold up all that's hanging on it is if it's putting pressure on both sides of the closet. Without that pressure, the rod will fall and so will all your bow ties. Not that that's ever happened to me. 
We need to hold the truth that, what, that we are God's children through Christ in one hand, and in the other, that we need to act out that identity in daily living. And that sounds impossible. How is it that on one side I say, all that I have is in Christ, and on the other side I say, I need to act righteously. I need to practice righteousness in my life. If I am abiding in him, I can't keep on sinning. If I keep on sinning, then the Bible says that I've never, neither seen him nor known him. Those can be terrifying verses. So today, I want us to think about three questions that we should ask ourselves about our growth in righteousness. And then we'll emphasize three gospel statements that John makes in this passage. And those will hopefully give us a reason to have confidence if we truly abide in Christ. So this is not a matter of trusting Jesus for one thing and ourselves for the other. Jesus didn't conquer sin so that I could make myself live more like him, but he conquered sin so that he could make me more like him. We just sang this. Jesus paid it what? All. He didn't say, let me get a good head start for you. Let me push you on your bike down the hill a little bit, but then once that hill starts to go up, you're going to have to start pedaling. No, he paid it all. He paid the, the price of one that the one that I was before knowing Christ, I was unable to pay entirely, and the right life that I that, so for the debt that I owed Jesus for my sin, and for the right living that I couldn't do on my own. Christ has made that possible. So let's look at that. So you can see your outline here today. Um, we're going to look at these these three questions. But before we do that, something that I missed in the outline, I apologize is this first point of looking at this word practice. Because you saw it a lot, right? Look at, look at your page and just kind of take a second to glance over 4 through 10, and you'll notice multiple times that this word practice shows up. It's actually appearing seven times, although in one case it's translated differently than practice. But the Greek word is all over this passage. We even saw it last week if you look back. Last week we looked at chapter 2, verse 28 through 3, 3. And you'll already see, even at the beginning of verse 29 of chapter 2, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now it's important for us to remember off the bat that practicing righteousness and this, this phrase of keeping on sinning in the life of a believer is not telling us that we need to be perfect, right? This is not talking about perfection. This isn't to say that now you're in Christ, so you'll never sin ever again. And we know that not only from the larger um, New Testament and Old Testament that we see that truth very evidently in, but we see that even in John's writing that we looked at before. So look back up again to chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if you can come to church and say, for any length of time, I have not sinned, then you must be a super Christian or something like that that the Bible doesn't even talk about. That's not a, that's not a real thing. We still sin. And John gives us the prescription for it, for those, those moments where we fall off the wagon, as it were, and back into our old patterns of life. John is not saying that practicing righteousness is the same as being sinless. Otherwise, he'd be contradicting himself. He's talking about our patterns of life. That's what I want you to think about in regards to this word practice. You wake up in the morning, you eat breakfast, you get ready to leave, you hop in your car, you sit at your desk, you do your work, you go home, you get up the next day and you do it all over again. That's a pattern. It's 
a very familiar pattern, I'm sure. It's a repeated, intentional way of doing life. And this is what John is trying to uh, put in our heads about practicing righteousness versus practicing sinfulness. Righteous living and sinful living shape our character. If I were to invite you to breakfast tomorrow morning, you would have to pick a certain time that doesn't conflict with the pattern of life that you already have. You can't say, hey, sorry, I can't come to work tomorrow because I have a breakfast meeting. I don't know, maybe you can. That's pretty awesome. I guess I can kind of do that. That's pretty cool. So maybe there are more. This is a bad illustration. (laughs) Anyway, you have a pattern of life that can only be broken by something interrupting it by which you give that authority to be interrupting your schedule, right? You say, okay, I'm going to allow this thing to break up my normal pattern of living. And what John is calling us to is a lifestyle of righteousness. And that sin is not meant to be our lifestyle, but to be more of like a roadblock, more of like a pothole issue as you're driving to work every day, perhaps. Maybe I should have started with that illustration. Righteous living and sinful living shape our character. We grow in them, and Jesus wants us to have a pattern of life that reflects him, that reflects righteousness. And again, big fancy Christian Bible word, right? But righteousness is just talking about right living, living the way your creator has created you to do. None of us did that right. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now that we've been given new life, we've also been given power to live that life, and we'll see that in a second. Sin would call us to live rightly before ourselves and according to our own law. But because of Christ, we're being called to live in light of his standards, in light of his character. So as we see this word repeated over and over, let's remember that abiding children grow in practicing righteousness, not by getting a perfect score, but by making right living before God their goal, their perspective, their directive, rather than living on their own way. So let's look at this first question that you see up here, point number two, verses four through six. Am I abiding in Christ? We all know the parable of the prodigal son, right? The guy has two sons. One of them says, basically, I wish you were dead. Give, you, give me my inheritance so that I can go and do whatever I want. The other son stays and works. The prodigal son goes off, spends all his money, wastes it all on sinful living and realizes as he's working as a pig farmer, that he could have it better even if he was a servant back at his father's home. He travels back, comes up with a speech. I'm going to tell, I'm going to go. I'm going to say, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. But before he can even say all of that to his father, he stops him at the line, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And the father stops him and he puts a robe on him, puts a ring on him, puts sandals on his feet. You remember this parable, right? Very important parable. And the thing is, is that we can look at that and very easily see that that is a picture of salvation, right? The God, the God who created us, we've turned our backs on him and we've wandered off to do our own thing. But when we come back, he welcomes us in in our humility when we recognize that we have done wrong, that we have gone the opposite way as that he has created us for. But the truth is, is that you don't need to be a non-believer to still end up acting like a prodigal son at times. Anytime we practice 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins as believers and uh, we are in a sense realizing with the prodigal son what his own practice has led him to and what ours has led us to as well. We also get up, leave the pig slop of our sin and go to our father. So are you abiding in Christ? Verse four says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. This is a definitive, very clear statement 
Uh, he's still speaking to a church that's dealing with false teachers, if you remember from weeks before. And you can see seven times this definitive statement he will make about these two groups, those who practice righteousness and those who practice lawlessness. John says that sin is lawlessness. And he uses a Greek word that was typically reserved for the worst kind of crimes. This is a very easy thing for us to look at this word lawlessness. And in your own mind, just attach whatever you think would be the absolute worst thing somebody could do. Put that in the place of lawlessness. And what happens in your mind is that we might cringe, we might even feel superior perhaps to the other person since we've never done something so wicked. But remember what he says here, all sin is lawlessness. The word all isn't in there, but it's implied, right? In verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There is no such thing as a little sin, okay? There is sin and it is lawlessness. It is rebellion against God. And the truth is, is that as we think of perhaps the worst possible sin that we maybe have experienced in our life or seen or heard of. The truth is, is that apart from Christ, we have no more righteousness than the person who has done those things. Sin is lawlessness. And that is true even for the believer, even for the one who returns to that prodigal lifestyle, even for a moment in life, is really embracing the old way of life and embracing that old lawlessness in some ways, as we consider sin as a believer, it's kind of worse than the sin of a non-believer. I mean, think about it for a second. You have realized the good gift that Christ has given you, embraced it, and been made new, might choose to sin again? How terrible, how wicked that sin is. It's lawlessness. It is rebellion even against your Father, your Heavenly Father who loves you. I don't say all this to try to make you feel terrible about yourself. This is what the Bible is letting us know today. And there's good news that comes in verse 5. But I'm going to stall for another second, just so you can sit in that for a minute. Because I need, I don't know, maybe even just for selfish reasons, because I had to sit in it all week. <laughs> Sin is lawlessness. Then we come to verse 5. John reminds his readers that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. This gospel statement is definitely good news to us, but only after we've remembered that bad news. Because we are taking this righteousness test that John is giving us, as it were. We need to remember that my sin, even as a believer, is still lawlessness. But what Christ has endured at the cross was so severe because even our most socially acceptable sins were acts of lawlessness before God. The good news of verse 5 is not good news unless we remember this. So our hope of growing in practical righteousness hinges on this truth. He came to take away sins. That is your sin, my sin. If you want a homework assignment for later, go to Leviticus 16. There you can find instructions that God gave Moses for the priests as far as how to perform the highest day of the Old Testament calendar, which was the Day of Atonement. So while there was one goat that was offered as a burnt sacrifice on the altar, another one was selected and sent out into the wilderness. This is where we get that term scapegoat. The one that we, you know, if, if you're in a, at a work situation and you're trying to find somebody to blame perhaps for something that went wrong, you find a scapegoat. You find somebody to take the blame and put it all on that person. This is where that term came from. So Aaron would confess the sins of the people over the goat. Then another was selected to drive the goat out of the camp 
and far away in the wilderness to die. And I actually read or heard somewhere, and I couldn't find it this past week, but I heard that while there was one point person that would, that would have that job of driving that goat out and saying, you need to leave, not that you could talk to the goat and convince him to leave, but, you know, rushing him along, I heard somewhere that this was actually something that a lot of other people would get involved with too. And they would kind of yell and scream and make noise and, and scare the goat away that there would be more participation in this. We want our sin to be far away from us. Christ has appeared in order to take away sins. He's appeared to become our scapegoat because he also was driven outside of the camp. Hebrews 13 tells us. He appeared to take away our sins. And that's why verse 6 says that the one who abides in Christ cannot keep on sinning. Because if we're abiding in him who is sinless, in whom there is no sin, then we cannot keep on sinning the way we used to before we knew him. This is an incredibly important, very serious issue to deal with as a Christian. Because so much of what we hear today and what's available to us as far as an interpretation of the gospel goes leaves out the matter of sin, leaves out the matter of sin in a believer's life, leaves out the fact that we are called to say no to sin now that we've been made positionally righteous. We are also to be practically righteous. He rose from the grave and has given us the opportunity to abide in him or to make our home in him, to build our life on his. So are you abiding in him today? The truth, this truth gives us reason to believe that though we are still tempted and we still even sin, after the coming of Christ into our lives, we can fit the description of the righteous in verse 6. Don't hear no one who abides in him keeps on sinning as a goal you need to work up to. So don't start thinking that, okay, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to have to start figuring out how to not continue in my sin. But rather, Jesus has paid it all. The statement comes right after the fact of what Jesus has done. Take sin seriously in your life and abide in him as you deal with it. But remember the gospel. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. It was this matter of remembering what they know is true in Christ that brings us to the only direct instruction in the whole passage. We need to practice righteousness, but John has been saying that as a matter of fact for the life of the believer. In verse 7, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. So that's the one direction that he gives, the, the absolute you know, uh, imperative, the command that he gives in this passage. So whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is from the devil. So things are getting even kind of like worse thinking about sin is lawlessness. And if I practice it, then I'm of the devil? That's kind of terrifying. Well, the antichrists that we read about in chapter 2 were teaching that practicing righteousness was not necessary. That we could be right spiritually with God through Christ and either ignore our physical failings because they either don't matter or because they're completely separated from our spiritual reality. And though we don't see the same teachers today, we still face this idea in some different ways. Some church leaders teach the same idea. Others may just not talk about sin and righteousness at all, and through silence, make the same error. It can be tempting to think that dealing with sin is an elementary issue or something that I had to do when I first became a Christian and not something to worry about as we mature, as we go on in the faith. Our culture's dealing with pandemic and racial tensions hinges entirely on re-education. And that's because what we think 
in, in our own selves, and particularly maybe as Americans as, as, as with so much available information to us, we just think that just like all the other ways that we have attack problems in our world, all we need to do is re-educate ourselves. We just need to change ourselves in one way. The kind of teaching that says, do better is in contrast to the gospel, wherein we find teaching that says you must be born again. You need a new life. You need to be the children of God. And if we are born again, we need to remember that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning like they did before. This is not a a direction. Again, we we saw the only direction in verse 7 was let no one deceive you. So he's not saying, hey, start living righteously. Stop keeping on sinning. He says no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. That is a fact. That is something outside of ourselves that has changed us. So we do have to address the question, have I really been changed? Am I really his? But the truth is, is that while that might create fear in your heart, if you are wondering, am I really his? That is a great place to be. Because many wouldn't even wonder, wouldn't even ask the question. We need to wonder. We need to examine ourselves. We need to ask hard questions like, am I abiding in him? And in this section, am I learning from true teaching? Is the word of God the real authority in your life? As a child of God, nothing carries more weight than his word. He says that our deepest issues are not just evolutionary hiccups, but they're actually rebellion against him. It's actual lawlessness. John says that the one who makes a practice of lawlessness, who builds their patterns of life on lawlessness, is not a wanderer who's basically good, but is of the devil, because the devil had been sinning from the beginning. Maybe you imagine the use of the devil in Scripture as a scare tactic. Don't be on the devil's side, be on God's side. John doesn't bring it up simply to scare us straight, but to explain the fact that in practicing sin, we may prove to be abiding not in Christ, with the evil one. And he says that in 1 John 5, 19, we'll see in a few weeks, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If I'm not in Christ, then I'm moving right along with the pattern of life that the enemy wants me to be in. You know, it's interesting for us to consider then, if I am in Christ, if I am abiding in him, then does the enemy have any hold over me? Does he have any power over me? Does he have any influence? Can he? Can he tempt us still? His goal might be a little bit different. His goal is not going to be to try to take us away from Christ because we can't become unadopted, as we talked about last week. But his goal might be to slow us down, perhaps. Maybe to let us know that, yeah, the world doesn't know Christ, but boy, wouldn't it be really offensive to start telling people about him? Maybe people won't like you anymore. You know, following Christ and practicing righteousness, it's not very fun. You have to give up a lot to get that. Is it really worth it? All this guy needs is for us to cease abiding in Christ. And he can use whatever source we listen to outside of Christ to keep us in a practice of sinning rather than of righteousness. John's second gospel statement comes at the end of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He takes our sin far away from us. And he literally breaks the works of the devil. What is that work? It's the same it's been since the garden. He's a liar. Like you said earlier, you can probably sum up the work of the devil in every believer's life with the same phrase he used with Eve. Did God really say, is it really worth it? Do you really want to move forward in practicing righteousness? Do you 
think that God has something better to offer you than what you could have right now. Apart from Christ, we're powerless to overcome his argument, but he has destroyed or undone or broken or untied the works of the devil so that we can practice righteousness. Now that Christ has broken the devil's work, we are free to see the lie for what it is and listen to true teaching from his word. Last question we need to ask ourselves today, verses 9 through 10. Do I belong to God's family? The last big gospel statement is in verse 9. John adds to the earlier statement that if we abide in him, we cannot keep on sinning with the fact that God's seed abides in believers. Look at verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Okay, John, we heard that before, but here's another additional truth that will establish us in why this is possible because or for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Belonging to God's family because of the work of Christ. Again, not because of anything that we've done. And this is important for us today as we think about our positional righteousness. Christ has given us that. He's given us that position, but not so that we can simply from that grow on our own, but rather he is growing in us. And that's why John says over and over throughout this book to abide in him. And so when you hear practice righteousness, think about practicing with the best coach that there is. He does not call us to say, now go on and do everything that I want you to do. He is with us every moment. That sounds elementary and it sounds very beginning Christianity 101. But I don't know about you, but I forget it all the time. I forget it, though I spend much of my week looking at this, trying to figure out how to talk to people on Sunday about it. I mean... If anything in my life should be saturated with the presence of God, it should be what I'm getting prepared to do today. And yet so much of the time I realize as I'm writing and reading and looking over and moving around and doing all these sorts of things, I realize so much of the time that I forget to be in the presence of the one who is actually speaking to me. And my friends, it doesn't matter if you, okay, in one sense, it doesn't matter if you're preparing a sermon or washing dishes or changing a diaper. Abide in Christ. His seed abides in you. And because of that, because that good news abides in you, if you think back to chapter 2, verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. How is it that I practice abiding in Christ? Let what I heard from the beginning abide in me. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. And I would dare you to try that this week and see what changes. See what really trying to abide in Christ looks like. Because let's face it, maybe, maybe we might think like, hey, I've got some pretty good patterns in life. You know, I like to read in the morning, spend a good amount of time in prayer. I do some ministry. Those things are good, but perhaps it might be helpful for us to remember the presence of Christ as often as we possibly can, regardless of the activity. He's with us in every moment. And only because that is true can we practice righteousness. Can we grow in that as we remember these basic elementary truths of the gospel? You know, a C.S. Lewis quote that I heard from, um, I was listening to his, uh, his book, Mere Christianity. And he says, a mother teaches her child to speak by speaking to her as if she already knew how. He says, the gospel is the basement level and the top floor of our faith. And that just became really real to me because I've been talking to Lucy, trying to get her to say words, 
and realizing that a lot of what happens when a one-year-old starts learning words is just because they've heard it over and over and over again. If we struggle to abide in Christ or abide in the truth that we know of him, of, of, of letting that truth that we heard from the beginning abide in us, it's because we might just need to keep hearing it over and over and over again, day by day. Preach the gospel to yourself. He's made you his child if you believe in him. If you are truly his, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, though you might fall, though you might struggle, that struggle actually proves that you belong to him. Because apart from Christ, we don't struggle with sin, right? We don't care. We do what we want to do. We live by our own law. Even if that law includes something of trying to be good in some way. But the work of Christ in our hearts is to reveal our sin to us reveal our need to live righteously and then reveal to us the means by which we do that. It's not a higher escalon of Christianity. It's not level three when we're only on level one and you can't do it yet. It is today abide in Christ and live in him. So the reflection questions are almost the exact same as the outline, but let's go there anyway, because I also put those three gospel statements in there in case that's helpful. The three um, big gospel statements of this passage where Christ appeared to take away sins, to remove them far from you, to be that scapegoat on your behalf. Second one, Christ appeared to destroy the, the devil's work. You cannot live by that trite phrase, the devil made me do it if you're a believer. You have power to overcome temptation. Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians that there's no temptation that is that has come to us that is not common to man and also one that, by which, that God does not also provide a means of escape. He's destroyed the work of the devil. We might fall here and there, but we have power in Christ to live and practice righteousness. Lastly, God's seed abides in believers. This is our great hope and confidence. On your worst day, where you feel like, how in the world could be, I be a child of God? If your whole hope and faith rests on Christ alone, you are. He has let that word sink in your heart and become a seed that springs up into eternal life. And then there's those three questions for us to think about today. Am I abiding in Christ? Are you doing that right now? Am I listening to true teaching? I sure hope so. <laughs> Lastly, do I belong to God's family? That's what verse 10 um, brings up to us. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil if we practice righteousness, we are God's children. If we practice or create a pattern of sin in our lives, we don't belong to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that though there is a serious matter for us to deal with on an individual basis, we also have a great, incredible, a, a perfect hope in Christ not in ourselves whatsoever, Lord. Help us as we think on these things. First of all, help us to think on these things and not just leave them here as we go about our way, but rather, Lord, help us to hear from you and to examine ourselves seriously, whether we are abiding in you, whether we are living as children of God. Lord, help us to realize that our only hope is in Christ alone and only by what he's done. Can we be motivated and empowered to grow in righteousness as we remember who he is, remember what he's done on our behalf, and as we look to his second coming as well? Let us be that kind of people that you've created us to be today. In Jesus' name, amen.